episode 153 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 22nd of November 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Shit, what's the hello in Russian? (laughs) (laughs) Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yes, Russian. That's very relevant. So first impressions comes back after a, a bit of an absence. And this time we've been looking at Alt Linux, or Alt Linux, which is a Russian distro. That's not, I write the description and that's fucking all I could come up with. I'm sorry. It's a Russian distro. And uh, F2, F2, that's mm. my tip. When you boot it, F2, change the language. Otherwise, it's a fucking nightmare. Some of us are hardcore. We like to live Cyrillically. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did we all get on with this then? Great. <laughs> Will, did it work on the haunted laptop? I didn't dare install it on a real machine. How about that? I had to put it on a VM. Um, I broke my broke <laughs> my golden rule and stuck it on a VM. Well, so this is what I was thinking about when I was installing it. I, I thought, is this just me being a racialist? Should I actually <laughs> have some faith in this operating system? And I, I probably should do. It's all open source. But nevertheless, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't do it in a real machine just in case. And in a way, I'm glad I didn't because... If you like Debian from about 1999, then, you know, this is where it's at. It was pretty quick, but that's about all I've got to say. I think we have to start with the fact that there are a lot of different versions of this, and it's all quite confusing. There is an English language wiki about it, and you've got the various versions, Sisyphus, Stable Branches. It's all just a bit confusing. I went to Downloads. And there was Workstation, there was Co-Workstation or K-Workstation. Have a guess which one I got. I'm going to say you went for the education version? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I went for Workstation, which is Mate, and then K-Workstation is, unsurprisingly, Plasma. And the Mate one looks a bit old and not amazing, but the K one, the KDE, Plasma, I thought looked quite nice. It looked quite nice. It was quite old, though, which, like, so... Plasma's 5.18, like if you take Neon now, it's 5.23, and Frameworks was 5.70, and it's now 5.88. And the kernel was all right. That was 5.10, where it's 5.11 and Neon. It was a nicely done KD, but the problem I had was this. It was crossing the streams, and it had loads of GNOME software in there, which really annoyed me. So I selected graphics as a sort of meta package group, and it brought down a whole load of things like GIMP and all these things, but there was no Krita in there, which I thought was really bizarre. The fact that there's a KDE graphics application is really good, but it's not in there. Um, meanwhile, the other ones are. So, I mean, maybe that's just package of choosing. I don't know. But the same was for the multimedia stuff where there was like a, a Linux Winamp clone. I've actually forgotten what it was called, but there was like no Eliza, which is a really good modern KDE audio application. So I just thought some of the choices were a bit strange. Kernel 5.10 is the LTS release, and which... I think is probably a smart decision on their part. And I noticed that Firefox was also the LTS release. So I guess that makes sense. Except it was the old ESR. Oh. It wasn't the latest one. So I just got the flat pack instead. And that was just the latest, not the latest ESR, but the latest, latest Firefox. And just didn't look back after that. Graeme, you've been very quiet about this. Did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say those exact words. I think Will kind of said everything I had to say. I did try it, so I but I did leave it to, until today. And I didn't really want to say 
anything too negative about it because I don't feel like I've, I haven't understood its reason for being. And also most distributions that are picked out of the Wheel of Mare that we try, I've usually tried before. And really, I know nothing about Alt Linux. I tried to go through the documentation and the documentation is poor. I thought that maybe the Russian documentation was better. Obviously, I can't read Russian, but I looked at the Russian documentation. It seems to track the English documentation pretty much one to one. <laughs> Only you could tell that a documentation person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm, I'm just not getting it. Um, it's just like an old version of Linux. Um, and that's about as far as I got. I did get it installed. I did get it switched to English. Um, I also watched a couple of people on YouTube looking at it to see if I was missing some great insight. And so... I guess if you're Russian, it's great that you've got um, a, a distribution that puts your language first. Maybe that's what makes it good for those people. I think that is ultimately what I took away from this. Not so much the distro itself, but the experience. Because I didn't realize to press F2. I was distracted. I'm going to make my excuses, but ultimately I'm a bit thick. What can I say? And so I said, oh, this is all in Russian. Oh, live CD. There's bound to be an option to change it to English. Uh, no, muddled through the install using Google Translate on my phone with the camera thing pointed at it. And it's like, you know, constantly changing the meanings of words and stuff. And I went through, installed it, even got it updated and it was all fine. Uh, and then I thought, hang on. I was tired the other day. Let me have another go at this. There must be a way. And then sure enough, press F2, which I then subsequently noticed when I uh, booted up an old uh, Zubuntu disk. I think it was 10.04 on a Mac that I was looking to wipe. Long story. It only boots from CD. I only had CDs. I wanted Zubuntu, and that was the only one that I could find that was less than 700 megabytes. But even back then, F2, that seems to be the standard key to change the language. I'd never even considered this before because all the distros that I've ever tried are English. It might be English simplified, but at least I can speak that. And it gave me this insight of like what it must be like if you don't speak English and you want to try out Linux. It must be a nightmare. Well, see, the funny thing is, every time I boot a server install for Ubuntu, it asks what language I want straight away. It's the first question, and all the languages are listed in their own language by default. So... I don't know why installers can't just do that. At least that way, you know, assuming there is a translation for your language, you could get through it. But yeah, you're right. I think it's USP has to be Russian. Yeah, because even selecting the country, once I had it in English, I mean, can you imagine this massive, like 300 country long list? I'm trying to do that with Google Translate. And like, I'm scrolling. Oh, there was English. Oh, shit, I scrolled too far. I've got to scroll back up. But even once I got it in English... It was just the typical problem, right? You, United States, Ukraine, no, okay, okay, right. It must be Great Britain then. No, no, England, no, no. Oh, it's under B for Britain with UK in brackets. And again, it just, it made me feel like a foreigner, which is not common with Linux because it sort of always defaults. Software generally defaults to English, doesn't it, as a language. So that that was the experience that I'd never had before. And that I think I'm really grateful for, to have felt that foreign feeling. And it gives me more empathy with people who don't speak English or don't speak English well. Although it was funny, even when I installed it in English, sometimes the terminal would just start giving me Russian characters when I was typing, and I just I have no idea what I did. Pull the plug out of the wall, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just trying to type, you know, apt get 
update or whatever. It wasn't you typing. <laughs> Honestly, you lot are such xenophobes. <laughs> but I also looked at a couple of YouTube videos, and what I learned from those was that it uses RPM, but it has synaptic mm. and apt-get works apt doesn't but apt-get does is that what it was see i thought it was an apt-based distro because in kde the default update manager is synaptic which kind of didn't work very well because I had this weird three windows popping up and it finished but didn't finish and close properly and stuff and I tried apt and it didn't work. And I thought, ah, it's probably so old. It's probably apt get. And then that worked. And then I assumed it was an apt distro. Well, it's apt RPM. Ah, right. I had a similar experience in the default desktop one where it told me there were some updates and then Synaptic popped up. And then I went to install some other software and GNOME software popped up. Um, that was confusing. And yeah, the same problem, like popped up a message. Something didn't work, but it wasn't quite clear on what. And then I stopped trying. Well, I had that old Debian problem of where it thinks the CD is still installed and it can't find it. And so it shits itself. So you have to go and edit your sources list and comment that out so that it doesn't keep spitting errors at you. I think ultimately, I don't really know anything about the team behind the project. I don't really know anything about the project. And that's no fault of their own. That's just me not being educated about these things. But... Coming from that point of naivety and some unfair preconceptions about maybe what it was doing, I just didn't feel really easy with it. And I, I, sh I should feel easy with a Linux system. If the, if the software is all open source, I should be able to trust it. And ultimately, I didn't trust it. And I don't think that's their fault. If I was Russian, then I think it would be very good to have a native, homegrown distro. And I hope that a lot of people in Russia are using this and um, contributing to the project. But it's not for me. Right, let's spin the wheel. Oh, what's this? Ubuntu Chillin, the Chinese version of Ubuntu. <laughs> <laughs> My machine is owned from all angles. <laughs> not really, of course. Okay, let's spin the wheel to find out what we're going to look at in two weeks' time. Oh, okay. It's Garuda Linux, which is based on Arch with lots of fancy stuff on top of it. Jesus. <laughs> this is going to be great. I can't wait for one. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support if you want to join those people. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And that includes Late Night Linux, Late Night Linux Extra, and Linux After Dark. 
And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Let's do some feedback then. And we got quite a lot about email clients. It seems that Jim ruffled some feathers on episode 151 with his claim that all email clients are shit. And we heard all different perspectives. The first one was from Tom. Two bits of feedback on the email client discussion in episode 151. Keyword search in Gmail. I might be doing something wrong, but I have never been able to get decent search results in Gmail. There are emails which I know contain certain words, yet a search for those keywords, the email just don't appear. Well, Tom, you are definitely doing it wrong because Google, I don't know if you've noticed, but I know they're an ad company really, but their main thing is search and Gmail search is fucking excellent. So I just don't know what you're talking about. I will say that I haven't experienced that with Gmail, but with Google Docs, I definitely get missed searches. When I know that there's something in Google Docs and I search for it explicitly, it does not always find it. And then I find it later under something else. So I don't think Google is all that great. I think Google Docs search, incidentally, Google Docs is where information goes to die, but Google Docs (laughs) search, I think there are two tiers. There's a free tier and a paid for tier. And I think you don't get the full search on the free tier. I might be wrong on that. On Gmail search, I agree with Tom. I think it is crap. I was searching for a M2 NVMe drive that I know I bought. And I was searching for M space two, M2 altogether. And it said, no, doesn't exist. If I searched for M.2, then it appeared. Well, yeah, that's you doing it wrong, mate. Like it's M.2. No, no, it's not. No, no it's not. It's, it's a three, it, it's a three, it's a less than three limit on the search. I bet you. So it doesn't look for stupid things like of. I was doing other things as well. I know where I was buying it from. So I searched for the name of the retailer. I'd narrowed it down. I knew it was there but it was a a full stop in the middle of the two characters and that was enough to confuse it. That shouldn't be the case. If you're searching for an M.2 drive and you don't write M.2, that is on you, not Google. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Fight, fight, fight. (laughs) But then K-Mail's never going to find it either. Ooh, take that back. All right, let's do the next bit of Tom's email then. Well, he says... Can we get a report from Phelan on searching his 10 years of email in Kmail? Yes, you fucking can. It works brilliant. Uh, I know, and I did actually try because I went for some of the things. So I set up my own company in Ireland from France, and that was the end of 2010. So I searched for some of those emails and I found them. Yeah, because Tom says that after a long time of using Marte, he's getting a new laptop and he's going to be switching to... What's this thing called? KDE? He's a wise man as what he is. <laughs> he should be switching to XFCE. So you think that it is good then? You've actually tried this out since we had that discussion and it is delivering. Yeah, no, I, I did. Um, now, I, I do have one script that I run every now and again, which is purely by the fact that I've managed databases every now and again. And I do repair cleanups and optimize on tables. And I just built a small script for Akinadi as well. And I have no idea if that is a good thing or a bad thing, but it has actually worked very well for me over the time. Just if you have a situation where you crash out in your desktop, just the idea that there's a database that is indexing uh, meta information for your emails, etc. I just have a tendency to think that it would be damaged over a while. So I have a small script and they're all built in Akinati tools where you do a repair on the tables and optimize and all that. And I just run that every day in a cron job. And that is purely by the fact that I just do that on databases anyhow. Well, Dale said that searching within his emails that go back to 2017 
which is 14,500 of them, brings up great results almost instantly. And he said he'd been using Linux since 1998, and he knows all too well how crap KML was, but not anymore. It's had its moments, yeah, and and they lost. A lot. It was it's really old application. I think that's one of those things where you know if you could design a thing from scratch and everything went really well, you'd have a great piece of software. But that's not the reality of the world, and it's existed for what twenty odd years, nearly probably. And you know, there's a lot of old stuff. There's a lot of changes, emails and stuff. I mean, you're not talking with like decent standards where you know Gmail changes its authentication protocol every other fucking week. So yeah, no, it's it's good. It is really good. And it's good to see like continual updates to it as well. All right. Well, we also had some defenders of Thunderbird, including Rob. Yeah, so Rob said that in early 2020, Thunderbird made the move to its own separate but wholly owned subsidiary of the Mozilla Foundation. At this time, there was a significant uptick in donations, as it turns out the community really does value the email client. There is now a sizable team of engineers paid to work exclusively on Thunderbird, enabled by those donations. For searching through email, Thunderbird has a great feature called the Quick Filter. Press the Quick Filter button on the toolbar, type a query, then choose one or more of the four toggles. Sender, Recipients, Subject and Body. All of those are efficiently indexed and return almost instant results over my gigabytes of locally cached email. Well, that sounds pretty convincing. I've never tried to use Thunderbird for a lot of email. But uh, it seems that Jim was wrong then, according to anecdotal experience at least. It seems that KML and Thunderbird can do the job. They're boring, but that's good. That's exactly what you want with an email client and a a calendar application, etc. Although David wrote to us with a tinfoil hat take, maybe? Yes. David says, no one should be using email clients unless they're a fan of giving away their domestic IP local IP, host name, and a bunch of other data to anyone who cares to inspect the email metadata. Jim is correct in that running RoundCube on a remote VPS is the best option. It's also the most secure option. Even more secure is just using the webmail interface of whatever provider you choose. If you're using a client such as Thunderbird and you send me an email I don't like, your IP and other data is there for me to use, and the implications of that don't need to be explicitly stated. Not that I ever would. Yes, I'm aware that I'm sending this through a Raspberry Pi-based email server, rain loop front end, three feet from my head, (laughs) and the attendant irony is not lost to me. I just think desktop clients are a really bad idea in most cases. Rubbish. But also, if you go into Kmail, into the sending options, you can actually send a custom hostname to the server and a custom email address. And there's even pre-commands where you can put all sorts of tinfoil hat-based scripts into that. If you do change the headers or if you do mess around with it spoofy the host name, I can't imagine it ends well if you're sending it to the majority of domains. Well, I don't think it should matter. As long as you've got the authentication side of it done right, it shouldn't be a problem. Like, he's he's worried about people seeing his internal hostname and internal IP address. Well, so? I don't get that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. But I'm, I guess he's saying that, that your, somewhere your actual IP address of your, say, your home connection will be revealed somewhere in the metadata. Well, you should still be sending through a server that's on a proper public hosted server address. So it's not like on a home DHCP network range. It's on a proper... Like mine sits in a data center. And, you know, 
do you really care? I mean, hopefully you've done your patches, etc., and it should be okay, and you've locked it down. <laughs> yes, yeah, sent us there, Graham. Uh, <laughs> if 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 everybody had their own mail server, we wouldn't have these massive outages left, right, and center, where you know twenty five percent the internet disappears offline. Remind me, Graham, what's the CentOS equivalent of unattended upgrades? <laughs> you add yum update to cron. Ah, I see. You do it the old-fashioned way. Sorted. <laughs> All right, well, we, we had feedback about this whole segment from Kev Quirk, but this was a little bit different. Instead of an email, it's a fucking blog post that's entitled, This is What's Wrong with the Linux Community. And he goes on about how elitist Jim is, saying, oh, you've got to run Roundcube on a VPS and that needs a database and Nginx or Apache and how that's ridiculous. And he asked the question, why do so many folk in the Linux community default to overly complex solutions when it comes to solving problems? I take issue with this. I think this whole tarring the entire Linux community with Jim's wrongness is just totally ridiculous. <laughs> Jim's wrong, correct. But that's just Jim. He's Jim's being Jim there, I think. Well, what Kev is trying to say in this post is that Jim is not unique here. And this attitude that he has isn't unique at all. It's common. So, but I see, I don't think we should do this whole Linux community thing. It's an entire other discussion, but I think anybody who's interested in stuff will have a community who will bike shed the hell out of whatever they're talking about. And that's games or Mac. I mean, he even says that he's now a Mac user mainly. And, you know, I'm sure they have their own version of the exact same thing. And I think we should just not be so harsh. If somebody comes up with an idea and you think it's silly, it's probably silly maybe for you but maybe for someone else it's a great idea but i think we should just not be too harsh on the whole linux community with the same brush just use kmail essentially is what i'm saying <laughs> but you're just doing the same shit that jim is i'm not it's fucking out oh, of fucking there's a bit of a difference installing the entire server with a fucking web-based email client as opposed to just running kmail are you not running imap though Fail him. Oh, yeah, okay, I do have my own server, but you don't have to have your own server. You can use Gmail for some stuff, and I use that for, like, I have a couple of accounts that are just, you know, sign up for domain accounts where you don't have your DNS hosted on the same account that you get your email to, therefore you can't get the email that says that your domain has expired. Yeah. Well, we did have people who said you should just use the webmail client of whoever your provider is, whether that is Gmail or whatever that is going to be the best bet well tell me how to use that when i'm up on a plane at thirty thousand feet and i've got an archive of the last 10 years of my email on my laptop because i'm able to download it and then tell me how that works for you what so you're gonna just sit there reading old emails <laughs> yes i am yes that's exactly what i am because i can't get anything else to fucking work so i'm gonna read email <laughs> Surely you're going to load your laptop or tablet up with uh, films and stuff to watch or watch the in-flight entertainment. Nobody's reading 10-year-old fucking emails on a plane. That is bullshit. It was a slight example. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> that was bordering on a car analogy, failing. We all like cereal. We all like choice. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Look, just use fucking Gmail. Who cares? You're not that special. You're not important. <laughs> Who cares? Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> they can train their grammarly fucking bots on somebody else. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. 
training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash Linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash Linux. Okay, we had quite a lot of feedback about collections and then getting rid of the stuff that you've collected, <laughs> especially if they're laptops. Daniel said, Honestly, if your computer can run at all, even if it's not super well, you might consider looking into shelters and the like. There are many homeless people who need computer access. Where I used to live, there was a local game programmer who was homeless and at one point needed a new laptop but couldn't get one. Ditto for those who may have multiple people in one family sharing a computer. Local high school computer clubs or STEM clubs where people tinker could also be avenues. There are people for whom a laptop, even one that will only last a year, could be incredibly empowering. I really like this email from Daniel, and it pointed out a few things that I hadn't really thought about. And he's absolutely right. So many services these days need to be accessed online. You know, if you want to, you know, apply for your benefits or apply for a job or anything, it's all online. And if you haven't got a laptop, then any laptop is is okay, even if that means that the lid is held together with gaffer tape it can be the difference between getting a job and not getting a job. So, yeah, that really, really inspired me to try and find a useful home for some of my old tech, which I think is probably useless, but actually works and could be useful to someone. One of the um, most inspirational things that I have that I came into contact with when um, I used to do magazine stuff was Free Geek in Portland. It was like a volunteer effort that took in old computers and laptops blanked them, refurbished them, and then gave them away to people who needed them and also trained people. They, they did put Linux on those machines. They put Ubuntu and it's still going. But it was amazing to see what just a very modest computer to us can do to people who it's, you may maybe have never used a computer before in their lives and have always been scared of damaging something. And FreeGeek would bring these people in. They'd show them how to access their <laughs> access their email, perhaps on a cloud. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they'd teach them to do all these skills that we just take for granted. And it really was a, a, a huge inspiration seeing that. Um, and I'm sure there are other projects now all around the world. Um, and that's another another good cause. So Craig writes in, he says, I spend some time documenting family histories and I encounter collections of unique documents which I catalogue using a tool called ZimWiki. It was once in the software boutique of Ubuntu Mate and I consider it my Swiss army knife for creating journals, lists and even a website. One of its strengths is its use of tags to categorise entries in a journal or a notebook. This provides flexibility to deal with attributes of an object without having to gen up on a database or squeeze something into a spreadsheet that doesn't really belong there. I think Phelan was right in his comments. Well, I mean, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I had a quick look at zim-wiki.org, and it proudly says that this website was made with ZimWiki, and it does look really interesting. A wiki is something I'd considered, but this seems like maybe a simpler way of doing that. 
And when I get time, I'll add it to my list of things to do. Who knows when I'll get around to it. But yeah, it does look really interesting. So thanks, Craig. I thought I'd flag that up for everyone else there. Jason said, it sounds like you have a guitar problem. The best solution would be to sell them all right now and save your wife the hassle entirely. I've just dealt with a family member's estate and dealing with a nerd collection is the last thing on any bereaved family's mind. Will them to a good friend, Denise, the Guitar Museum. Now, I just want to clarify something, right? Now, I said that I had like 15 or 20. That includes my pedals and stuff as well. I don't have some million pound collection that's going to be famous or whatever. Does the council have to come around and clear out the back room of the apartment because <laughs> it's so <laughs> festered with rats and guitars? No, what we're talking about is guitars that I have got good deals on and honestly quite a lot of cheap pedals. Like, especially last year, the Black Friday deals, I was getting pedals for like 13 pounds and stuff that are as good as any expensive pedal. That's what the man on the internet told you anyway. Well, yeah, exactly. The man on YouTube told me. But yeah, so just to clarify, this is not some amazingly spectacular collection. I've got one or two that are worth a few quid and quite a lot of other stuff that's worth more than being thrown out. And that's why I want to document them because I've got some shitty old acoustics that are not even worth a tenner probably. And I, you know, I need to distinguish between them for someone who doesn't know about that. Probably good for forward during Brexit later on in the decade. Yeah, exactly. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. Nostravia. Nostravia.